Y'all can go ahead and be seated. Good news and beautiful feet. I suspect for probably all of us in the room, uh, that's a strange connection. Good news and beautiful feet. But in the ancient world, word was slow. There was no telegraph. There was no email. There was no phone calls, no text message, no TV, no radio, no Morse code, no push notifications. News traveled by foot. And war was all-consuming. Standing armies were rare, and so when war broke out, the healthiest, the youngest, would be taken off to war. Everything else would be repurposed to be used for war. Food was repurposed, futures were uncertain, and everyone lived with big question marks over their head, looking for the end of the war and peace to resume. Word was slow, and war was long. And when the war was over, when peace would be established, how would you know? Well, a herald or a messenger would be sent from the battlefield back to the city uh, over a long distance to bring good news. This herald, this messenger would have dusty, dirty, muddy feet. But in his mouth, he carried good news. And the good news did something interesting. It turned his dirty, dusty, muddy feet into beautiful feet. This was the case for a man named Pheidippides. He was the famous herald uh, who ran 26.2 miles from uh, the plains of Marathon to the city of Athens with good news of great joy. After his 26.2 mile jaunt back to the city, he declared, he said, greetings, we are victorious. And then he died. Good news, quite literally, cost him his life. Earlier in the service, Justin read out of Isaiah 52. And Isaiah pictures good news and beautiful feet. For a world longing and needing to know their God, for a world needing salvation, the news that our God reigns is good news that makes feet beautiful. We're going to be in Romans 10 this morning. Romans 10, verses 5 through 21. If you've not been with us, we have been for some time working our way through the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 21, uh, that Isaiah passage will be quoted, and we will again see that good news and beautiful feet belong together. In fact, good news makes feet beautiful. So I'll read the passage, and then I will pray for us. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? 
The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Paul says, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their word to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Lord, we thank you for showing us Christ. We thank you for being present with us, for giving us a people to do life with, a people to worship alongside. We pray that you would do your work in us this morning. We pray that you would excite us over the good news of your word. We pray that that would infuse new life into our weary and tired and sometimes confused souls. Would you fix our eyes on you? Would you guard us from placing trust or hope in the things that the world offers that are shaky and unstable? And I pray that you would bless this people who are gathered here this morning. Make us look to you, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage, Paul makes two major moves. One of them, the first one, is Paul gives us reason for good news. He tells us what the good news is, um, and this will take us from verses 5 through 13. Now, here Paul has to be careful, because there's a couple ways that people approach what they would perceive as good news. The, The first one that people might think of is there's a law that leads to righteousness. That's one way. That's what we see in verse 5. 
But Paul says this is missing something because the other way to think about this, the better way to think about this, is there's a law that, like we saw last week, that then leads to Christ, that then leads to righteousness. And so Paul speaks of the first one in verse 5 about uh, this righteousness that's based on the law. He says, this righteousness is one built in, someone then has to live by the law. And we can see the logic of this. It should be fairly easy for us to see. We've got a, a graphic for you on the screen. It starts with, God loves us. That's a right and a good place to start. This was Israel's story, right? First, God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness, and it's after he rescued them, after he loved them, that he then gave them the law. What was the purpose of the law? So the thinking would go. The law is given so that we can then, as Paul says in verse 5, live by the law. Well, what happens when you live by the law? You're righteous. And if you're righteous, God loves you. You can see the, the way this logic works. Now, hopefully, you can also pretty quickly see the, uh, the problem there. Right? Uh, this puts us in a bit of a quandary. Because it ends up, even though it doesn't start there, it ends up making our righteousness the ground for God loving us, which, if we're talking about good news, is going to fall a bit short. Right? This is what we've seen all through Romans, especially in Romans 3, where Paul lays us bare. And so we can see that there's a problem if we draw the connection between we have the law and that then leads us to righteousness. The way this should work, what Paul lays out in the next few verses, is that righteousness doesn't come directly from the law. The law leads us to Christ, which then leads us to righteousness. Moses teaches us that righteousness actually stems from faith in Christ. Now, I want to make sure you keep these two things straight in your mind. So, on the one hand, we said the law leads to righteousness, and on this other side, we said the law actually leads to Christ, which then leads to righteousness. Keeping these two in order is really, really important. Uh, when I asked Mary to marry me, I gave her a ring. Now, there's more to the story. There's a humorous bit that we'll have to leave aside uh, for today. You can ask her later. Um, but I gave her a ring. We all know that the point of the ring is it points towards something greater. Right? The point of the ring is marriage. Now, what would we think if Mary, taking the ring, took good care of the ring, said, I have what I want, and then didn't come to the wedding? Like, that would be a problem. And the reason it would be a problem is because that would take the symbol, the thing that was supposed to point to something greater, and make it the greater thing. So here, we saw in verse 4 that the point of the law was to lead to Christ. The goal, the end, the final place for the law was to point to Christ. And so Paul says, if you mix this up, if you take the law as the thing that accomplishes the end goal, then you're actually still going to be stuck in your sin because you've not seen what the purpose of the law is for. This is similar to what Paul says in, in Galatians where he talks about the law as, a, as a, a babysitter, a guardian to 
keep us until Christ comes. If we, Paul says in Galatians, if we continue living under the law as if that's still the thing that reigns, we're actually living as if Christ does not come. And if Christ does not come, then we, friends, are still in our sin. But in fact, Christ has come. The goal that the law was pointing toward has arrived. And we are to live as those who are under Christ, Paul says in Galatians. Likewise, here in Romans, he says we are to live as those who are under Christ because Christ is the goal, the purpose that the law was moving towards. I hope you're seeing all of this connections from verses 4 to where we're getting now. And so the good news is this. If it's true that the law points to Christ, and it's from Christ that righteousness comes forth, then this means that as Paul lays out here in in chapter 10, that we don't have to go on this cross-world search for the thing that our hearts need. He, He quotes Deuteronomy 32, and he says, you don't need to go up into the heavens to try to bring Christ down. We don't have to, of our own effort and and desire, try to force Christ to be incarnated. We don't have to dive to the bottoms of the sea to bring Christ up from the dead, to resurrect him. As he says here in Romans 10, and in Deuteronomy 32, Moses makes the comparison between the heavens and across the sea, but the point remains the same. If our hope is in Jesus, then this means there's no cross-world traveling to try to bring this all together. No, the word of faith, Paul says, quoting Moses again, is actually near to us. The word is in our mouth, and it's in our heart. Paul tells us that our hope is in that we confess that Jesus is Lord, and we believe that God raised him from the dead. Jesus is indeed Lord. And this is good news. It's good news because it means no one and nothing else is Lord. You you feel weary from the things that clamor about you trying to project lordship over you? You find yourself weary from trying to run your life yourself? It's good news that Jesus is Lord, that your job is not your Lord that your spouse is not your Lord, your kids aren't your Lord, and your parents aren't Lord, your political party is not your Lord, your schedule, praise God, is not your Lord, your allegiance is to Jesus and to Jesus alone. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and this is good news. It's near us. There's no world traveling trying to search this out and bring it back for ourselves. Paul says it's near. It's in our mouth and it's in our heart. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. What you deserve, Jesus received. And the life that Jesus then has, he gives to us. To believe, Paul says, and to confess is to be saved. Good news, friends. This means that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Paul's explicit here. Jew and Gentile alike, he says, will be saved when they confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. All who believe in Jesus will be saved. The distinguishing lines between saved and not saved are not circumcision. They're not dietary laws. They're not keeping festivals or Sabbaths. The dividing line is belief in Jesus. Whether male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave, free, American, Chinese, Russian, Ukrainian, Palestinian, Israeli, does not matter. Not here. What matters is who Jesus is. Every other line that our world seeks to stand up and divide people between actually gets pulled down. All divisions, all wars, all hatreds, all hostilities get emptied at the foot of the cross because we all find that it's not good and bad, it's broken and needy is all of us. And it's to all of us that Jesus then offers mercy and hope and forgiveness. This is why where the gospel shows up, there's a strange unity that forms. And so the first thing Paul notes is that we are a people who have good news. And if we have good news, then Isaiah says, and Paul says, we have an obligation to have beautiful feet. Good news and beautiful feet. So in verses 14 through 21, Paul uh, sets up a a chain. This is kind of like what we saw at the end of of chapter 8, where Paul says that God has foreknown us and predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us. So here in chapter 10, he sets up a, a logical flow of events that should happen. If we have good news, then we ought to be sent. And if we are sent, then we can preach. And if the gospel is preached, then people can hear. And if they can hear, then they can believe. And if they can believe, then they can call out to the Lord. And if they call out to the Lord, then salvation. Good news requires beautiful feet. Now, Paul takes up a a bit of a challenge here. He he lays out this chain, and, and he knows that there's a little bit of a problem here. Because there is a group of people who have, in fact, heard the good news and have not obeyed the good news. You see that in verse 16. It says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Now, just a little bit of a sidebar here. Helpful pointer for us, I think, because sometimes we can play off faith and obedience as two things where we have to pick one or the other. And we ought to think about these the same way that we've been talking about God's sovereignty and human freedom. These two at first seem like they don't belong together, but they're actually good friends. Human sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and human freedom 
belong together, so too does faith and obedience. The two are actually friends. And so Paul says they've not obeyed the gospel. Well, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Israel. They've heard the good news, Paul says. This is, this is a chain, right? If you hear, then you can believe. And if you believe, you can cry out. And if you cry out, you're saved. But there's a group of people who've heard and have not obeyed. They've not believed. And so Paul says, is, is this whole thing broken? And in the last bit of chapter 10, Paul actually works around and says, no, this doesn't undo everything that I've said. This is all part of a larger drama that's working out um, where God has called Israel, and Israel has rejected God, and so God has brought in the Gentiles as a way to provoke them. Uh, Paul, here, as he does all over Romans, is handing out insults left and right. Um, remember, last week we saw uh, that he told, mentioned um, that Israel had, uh, was ignorant of the righteousness of God. We, we saw that last week, which is a bold claim for a people who know the law well, but Paul says in doing this, they're actually ignorant of the most thing. And, and here in chapter 10, he calls the Gentiles a foolish nation. And so all this is part of a, a larger landscape that God is working together to bring about all the purposes that he, um, that he has. And so the chain Paul connects here is if indeed we have good news, we need to send we need to preach so that people can hear, so that they can believe, so that they can call, so that they can be saved. And I find it interesting and really helpful that Paul uses the language of send here. Last week, we heard from the Fitzwaters who were getting ready to go soon. And one of the connections that they made that I think was really helpful, and I want to underline for us and make sure we're, we're getting this morning, is that when people go, when people bring the gospel with them to the ends of the earth, these aren't rogue people just doing things on their own. To take the gospel of Jesus is to be sent with something. It is the church involved together that leads to people going. And so Paul uses the language here of send. That involves people sending. And so when our people go out, church, you're in a privileged position because you're sending. But privileged positions also are positions of obligation. We are to be a people who pray for those that go. And so this passage, let me encourage you, you should lock away in your memory right beside Matthew 28 and Acts 1. These great evangelistic passages. Matthew 28 and Acts 1 are both right around when Jesus is getting ready to ascend. In Matthew 28, Jesus declares that all authority has been given to him, and so he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts, he tells the disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends the earth. And so here in Romans 10, he talks about us needing to send and preach so that people could hear and believe. Now we could take this piece and focus in on a couple different areas. We could talk about evangelism here locally, or we could also talk about globally. And this morning I want to point us to the global side of things, and here's why. You may not know this, 
But one of the major reasons Paul wrote the letter to the Romans was he was hoping to secure financial support from them to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Let me show you this. Look over at chapter 15. So Paul lays out all of the book of Romans, and then towards the very end, verse 24, he says, here's what I'm after. So Paul and the churches in Rome weren't just pen pals who were bored and writing each other letters back and forth. Paul is up to something. Verse 24, Paul says, I hope to see you in passing. Why in passing? Well, he is on his way to Spain. What does he want from the churches in Rome? He says, I want to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So here's something I want you to see. We love the book of Romans. And you know why the book of Romans exists? Like, why did Paul write this letter? Because he's working on gathering churches together to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, missions aren't an accident. Missions, in fact, hand us one of our favorite letters in all of the Bible. It's not leftovers that get sent to the ends of the earth. It's actually missions that is driving this great big theology and thinking big thoughts about God are stemming and flowing from a desire to see others know this Jesus. And so... You and I have really good news. We're called to be heralds, messengers, witnesses. Good news and beautiful feet. They they belong together. Now, here's the thing about beautiful feet. The feet of a herald weren't actually beautiful, right? They travel long distances. These feet smelled. They were dirty. They were filthy. They were sore. The person who owned these feet would be exhausted and would be longing to get off of their weary feet. The feet weren't beautiful. But they were made beautiful because of the good news that they had. So let me give us some questions to consider. Are you thankful for the good news that you have? Like, does it still amaze you that you have been given good news? Or have you become numb to it? Does it cause you to sit and wonder and marvel? Does it lead you to worship that God has given you good news? If it doesn't, then that would be why we don't go forth with good news. So first question is, are you thankful for the good news that you possess? Follow-up question, how often do you think about the good news going out? Out to your neighbors? your family, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your kids, to the ends of the earth? How much of space does that occupy in your mind? Or is it something that you, you kind of know exists, but 
doesn't really take up much space. If we know that we ought to think about this a lot and dream about this a lot and pray about this a lot, how often do your prayers line up with this? Do you find yourself praying that the good news would reach the ends of the earth? That people who've not heard would come to hear and believe and call out and be saved? Does your giving line up with that? Do we find it much easier to spend money on ourselves than to live simply so that we can help fuel and be a part of this good news, having beautiful feet, and reaching the ends of the earth. Do our prayers line up with this? Does our giving line up with this? Uh, by the way, here in, in a few weeks, we're going to start um, collecting money for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. All that money goes to missions going to the ends of the earth, so something to be thinking about. Um, parents, those of you who are raising children, how would you feel if your kids didn't become successful? What if instead of pursuing all the things that are on offer for us here, they packed up and moved halfway around the world? How would you feel? Would that be a success in your book? Or would it be something you weren't real thrilled about but knew you should and so felt too guilty to, to say anything? Students, and college students, what do you use as the measure for success? What's fueling and guiding the plans that you have when you get done with school? What are you chasing? What would you use to measure whether your life was well spent or not? Last question for us. Might God be awakening the hearts of people here among us to be sent? I hope so. Things to consider. Romans, that great letter, finds its legs and its purpose because good news needs to be carried forth. And so from all of that, uh, let me pivot us backwards a little bit. You see, the witness um, about Jesus is fueled by, wait for it, thinking about Jesus. Right? It's not a complex formula. It is thinking about meditating on Jesus that drives us forward with this good news. It's meditating on Jesus' coming to us, his sacrificing for us that both satisfies us and drives us. Most of us tend to be visual people. At least if you ask most people if they're a visual learner or not, almost everybody tends to say yes. Um, and, and Jesus is helpful here. Jesus gives us something visual, touchable, seeable, 
tasteable to help fix our mind on him, on his death, on his resurrection, and on the glorious hope of his return. Uh, We call it communion or Lord's Supper. And so let me go ahead and invite down those who are going to help serve the Lord's Supper for us this morning. Um, And as they make their way, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful gift from Jesus to his people. It's a gift that continually places his death, his resurrection, and his future return before our eyes. We are a forgetful people, and communion constantly calls us to be a remembering people. We remember that we were in need of saving. We remember that we have a glorious hope in Jesus. As we take the bread, we painfully remember his body broken. And as we take the cup, we mournfully remember his blood poured out. As we look around this room, we remember that Jesus hasn't called us to live on our own, but that he's placed people around us. He's made us a people. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not sure that you are a Christian, let me invite you to not take part, but to watch, listen, reflect, pray. Because the Lord's Supper is about remembering and you can't remember what you've not experienced. Instead, pay attention and talk with someone. I promise you, There is nothing anyone in this room would rather talk with you about than the hope that we have in Jesus. That's what we read about this morning in Romans 10. So let me encourage you, pay attention. Those of you who love Jesus, who treasure Jesus here, I want to invite you to participate. We will pass out the bread and the cup. and We'll have a song um, to help lead us in meditating on Jesus' death and resurrection. And once the song is over, we will take part together.